Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 506 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, September 8th, 2010, and today we're going to talk about why we prep. Uh, I did a show last week on why I do the show. And uh, that seemed to go over really well. This is not going to be a rehash of that. This is going to be a totally different uh, standpoint. Why we prep in the first place. Why I prep. Why I believe a lot of you prep. The deeper answer than I give to the question where I have, you know, 45 seconds when I'm in a media interview to answer, well, why do you even bother prepping? Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is the Lifesaver 4000 water filtration bottle from Ready-Made Resources. The Lifesaver was actually inspired, uh, or I would say his inventor was inspired by the uh, aftermath of the tsunami and how hard it was to find clean, fresh drinking water uh, anywhere in the area. A lot of it was, you know, disrupted by salt, and this is not going to desalinate water for you, but even the areas that were not salted were just stagnant, uh, backed up sewer lines, things like that. There was water, but it wasn't drinkable. So this gentleman developed a lifesaver and designed a filtration system to filter down to .015 microns. That's smaller than typical bacteria and viruses and will make just about any water clean and safe to drink. Uh, so check out the Lifesaver portable water filtration that will make anything safe to drink, something that belongs in the hands and the homes of every prepper. Next up today is MERS Radio, actually MERS-radio.com. MERS Radio is one of the more innovative things that I've learned about since doing the show. Uh, when I started doing the show, I had no idea what MERS was. I knew what ham was, but I was like, what is MERS? What, what makes MERS unique? Well, MERS is a... Unlicensed radio technology, meaning that you can use it without any kind of license or certification, has a, a real range of about one to two miles. Uh, you know, the radios you see in the uh, sporting goods store that tell you that they go 18 miles, uh, yeah, don't bet on that. They, they also have a similar range. Um, so it has an equivalent range of radios like that, but the advantage over it is a little more private, a little more secure. Not as many people use it. There's five primary frequencies and five sub-frequencies of each. And by going into the sub-frequencies, you, uh, you can definitely find yourself uh, able to communicate in your own neighborhood without really worrying about too many people hearing what's going on. You also can combine security with them. We have little motion detectors around our property in a base station, and if one of the dogs is trying to get out of the yard or some you know, two-legged snake is sneaking around in the middle of the night, we'll hear alert zone, zone one or alert zone two. 
Uh, you got to be careful with those. You mean, you know, a large moving bush or something in front of it could uh, could set them off. But generally speaking, when you set them up, if you set them up right, they're very, very reliable. They become a big part of uh, of our home security and secondary communications. So make sure you check out MERS Radio. Uh, next, make sure you're connecting with us in all the ways you can with our social media platforms, specifically Twitter and YouTube. I try to tweet. I don't really like tweeting, but I try to tweet two or three times a day some interesting stuff that comes in that I can't get on the show. And, of course, I I uh, have a system set up to let you guys know when a new show is published. I'm on Facebook a lot. I've really been won over to Facebook and how how useful it is for communicating with people and letting people know what's going on. I think Facebook actually, in a lot of disasters, uh, anything short of a global disaster that shuts down the Internet, uh, will be very useful in getting families back together, and uh, we use it to communicate with the audience. So check out our Facebook page. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And with that, we'll go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which again is why we prep. And I was thinking about this recently. I did some interviews recently, and you always get some version of why is this important, why should people be preppers, why should people be survivalists. And I generally give an answer to those questions that I wouldn't say is an inaccurate or not factual. It's completely factual. It's completely true. But it's what I consider to be a soft answer, and it's because... I might have 60 seconds to knock out that answer. might have 120 seconds. I might get two minutes of allocation for that. I might be in an interview that's 10 to 15 minutes long. And if I take two minutes to answer in a 10-minute interview, I've used up 20% of my time to answer the first question. So I can't go that deep. So I generally say something along the lines of, we prepare because sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and they're forced to fend for themselves. It isn't that the government or our neighbors don't want to help. Sometimes they can't. The situation is overwhelming, or simply getting to us is impossible. We have to realize that people are killed, injured, and have lives disrupted in the millions every year around the world, and that no person is immune to these events. If you've not been affected yet, you're fortunate. You might live your entire life and may never be touched, uh, but many do not get away with it. Many people have things come into their lives that disrupt them. And if the day ever comes that you're caught up in such an event, regret is going to leave a pretty bitter taste in your mouth. We prepare because not all disasters are earth-shaking or life-threatening. In fact, losing a loved one or a job is a disaster, and that happens to millions of people every year in the United States alone. Prepping's about being ready to deal with disasters from those that are global in nature to those that are per, uh, personal in nature. And it just makes good sense to be prepared because sooner or later the odds are that we're going to have to deal with something like that. Uh, as I said, there's nothing inaccurate about that. That's actually a pretty damn good answer. It's why I use it for contacts with the media. It's a soft sell. It, it, it's... Uh, it allows me to give that answer in a definitive way that opens a person's mind and says, hey, yeah, that makes sense. Hey, you know, I've never lost a loved one, but I know people who have. Or uh, I, I've never lost a job, but I know people that have. Or I just lost a job, and damn, I wish I would have been more prepared for that. Um, you know, I can see myself losing a job. And yes, some of these bigger disasters could happen someday. And yeah, I've seen all these places all around the world where it's happened to someone else. And I've thought, boy, I'm glad that's there and not here. But what really created that they're not here? It's chance. You know, it's circumstance. You have just as much of a, of a potential for a major disaster in Kansas as we do in Florida. I mean, one may be more severe than, or one may be different than the other, but they can have the same severity. You can have a huge blizzard slash ice storm in Kansas. 
we could have a hurricane in Miami. And, and those are just two you know, areas that generally people see as very different. And we look at third world nations and see an earthquake, and we think, well, you know, that's because of the way they build their houses and stuff. We'll talk to a person from California who lived through the earthquake, I believe it was in 1993, whichever the earthquake was that dropped the overpass on top of uh, where the double-decker highway was, and it dropped miles of the highway on top of uh, the lower highway. Uh, we have earthquake fault lines in the United States, too. We're not immune to this. And no matter how well we build our buildings, when you have a big one, you have a big one. We have areas in the United States that are extremely susceptible to flooding, uh, in storms, we have areas that are extremely susceptible to winter weather. And we have larger threats that are out there like um, flu pandemic, like EMP attack, like solar activity from solar storms. Uh, there's all types of things that threaten us. So that answer is good for people to begin to understand that, hey, we are vulnerable. It does make sense to prepare. But I'll tell you a secret, guys. It's not the big reason I prepare. Because those things are either going to come or they're not, and we're going to be as prepared for them as we can. We're going to deal with them the best that we can. But when it comes right down to it, my reason is because I don't want to be any other person's slave. And I know that sounds like a radical term, and it's why I generally don't use it in a short interview, because I won't have enough time to explain it, and they're going to think I'm some whack-job survivalist nut living out in the middle of nowhere in, you know, uh, Podunk, Idaho, or Joe, Joe Blow, Montana, or something like that. And uh, they're going to think that, you know, I'm nothing but a, a gun nut hiding from the black helicopters when I say that. And you guys here listen all the time, so you know better. And I also have more time, and it's my show, so I can explain what I mean by not being a slave. I mean, slavery takes on many forms. There's a classical, traditional definition of slavery, and that's that's the slavery that we were smart enough to eventually outlaw uh, in the middle 1800s, and we fought a war about it called the Civil War. It wasn't all about slavery, but it was a big part of it. And um, that that traditional definition of slavery is why people view a comment like mine that I don't want to be anybody else's slave is radical. You know, they think that what you mean by that is you don't want to be in chains. Well, there's lots of different types of chains, folks. And there's lots of different types of enslavement. Enslavement is not all about, you know, you make somebody pick cotton or, or do work on a farm and keep them in a, in a small shack, and if they try to get away, catch them and beat them. Slavery takes many, many forms. Debt is a perfect example, but it's bigger than debt. Today's show is not just about debt, because there are many ways that we've been enslaved in our society. Slavery is a mental status, more than anything else. If you think about it, um, you had a big plantation owner back in the classic days of slavery. Those people were slaves because they were mentally conditioned to be slaves. In fact, when they were liberated, a lot of them didn't really know what to do. They kind of stood around and said, well, what do we, what do, we do now? Where do we go? Because if you think about a plantation where you had an owner and maybe a small staff and they might be running two, three hundred people as their slaves on this big plantation, if those two, three hundred people rose up in unison and decided we're not going to tolerate this and turned on their masters, they would have been unstoppable. The only way to get that many people under the control of that few of, pe few of people is to convince them they don't really have an alternative. And then there were still the people that had a mentality that said, I'll escape. I'll go where I can be free. I'm not going to stay here. 
but those people were not capable of getting those around them. See if you start to feel familiar here. They weren't capable of getting those around them to wake up and realize it didn't have to be that way. You know, they couldn't get their buddies to their left and their right to understand, look, if we all go at the same time, we can take this place over, or at least we can all get the hell out of here. And if we sync up with a, with that that group over there and that group over there and that group over there and we put up a huge revolt and we do this all in unison and we get our asses out of here, they can't stop us. They would say that and they were looked at like they were crazy and they were mad and, and they were told, hey, this is the way that it is. There's nothing you could do. Make the best of it. Maybe if you do a really good job, you'll get promoted to house slave. How does that make you feel? Does that does that sound anything like modern America today? There's nothing you can do. You might as well just work within the system. I'm sure there's more of us than there are of them, but hey, you get to pick the lesser of two evils in an election. You know, you're lucky you have a job with benefits. Hey, hey, we have medical care here. We get two weeks off a year. Come on, this isn't that bad. Let's just get back to work. Let's just do what we have to do. It's a mental status. And it's the status that most of America is in today. They believe that they have to do things the way that they've been laid out for them. And they believe that for the same reason that the slave was mentally conditioned that way. The slave had a, be a much better reason to believe the lie than the, than the modern slave does. Because the slave of the time would have said, if I get away, where do I go? They'll even come get me if I get to the northern United States where there's free states. They're allowed to come do that. By the color of my skin, I'm marked. I can't get a real job. No one wants to take me in. I'm a third-class citizen. We don't have any of those excuses today. We have the same mental status. But if I didn't have my job, what would I do? Oh, my God, I could never afford my own health insurance. All of these things that we make up for ourselves come back to slavery. And it all starts with debt. There's a reason I talk about debt a lot. And that's because when it comes to debt... It is the catalyst that creates the entire environment that leads to slavery. Our, you know, our, our college age students, our senior high school age students in that realm, uh, not as much today as just 10 years ago because now they're getting credit cards before they're out of high school. They're definitely getting them once they go to college. But 15, 20 years ago, you could say that they were misguided. You could say that they were, um, a little bit too bent toward the liberal side in some situations. You could say that they were naive. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. They were naive about the real world and the way it worked. But one thing you couldn't say about them is that they were under anybody's control. They had this attitude that, hey, I'll figure it out, whatever, you know, and sometimes to their own detriment. But a lot of times it's what allowed them to find whatever their true passion was and go after that in life. But that same free, rebellious spirit of that college student ten years later in a real job with a suit and tie and a cubicle or what have you. Um, today in the software age, maybe they dress a little bit more like they would like to, but they're still strapped to that cubicle for a certain number of hours a day. They have five or six bosses that come down on them anytime they screw up a report or something like that. They feel like they're still in school, but hey, I'm just going to fit in because I'm going to get promoted. Now, what does that to people? It's not just a desire for an income. It's not just a desire to own a home. It's not just a desire to have nice things. It's the thing that goes along with that called debt. See, what happens is, as that person begins to achieve this normal life, 
the credit card offers start to come in, the mortgage comes in, the car payments come in, and eventually they get to a place where they're 30, and they think to themselves, I really have made some bad choices. This isn't really what I want to do with my life. But maybe they have one or two children by then. They have a house that maybe because they bought the wrong way, because some real estate agent told them they could afford more than they could afford, and they bought at the wrong time, they can't even sell the house and get out from underneath it. Not to mention the spouse would go nuts if they tried to do it because that's their house, even though it's killing them. Uh, they have debt with four or five different credit cards, and maybe one or both spouses are still adding on to it. Um, and, and, and they have to pay for all the other expenses that go with living that the debt-free person would have as well. The property tax, the, uh, you know, the electric bill, the phone bill, and everything else, and all the little activities for Johnny and Susie to do. And they get into a point where they just say, I can't leave. And the trap is done. The trap is set. And the trap is sprung. And you're in it. And you have a mental block that tells you, I can't get out of it. Prepping removes the mental block. Prepping takes it away. If you can deal with the downfall of society, then making a job transaction or transition just doesn't seem like that big of a deal now, does it? Selling a house that's in a bad situation, getting creative and figuring out it, just doesn't seem like that big of a challenge if you're ready for whatever could come your way from a man-made or natural disaster standpoint. I mean, it's small potatoes by the by the equivalent. But debt is what springs that trap on people. It's why I'm so big on making it one of your very first things is get out of it. And like most things that are things that will trap you, things that will enslave you, debt is not sold is the evil that it is. It's not like, we are MasterCard, evil overlords of the economy. Come and kneel and yield before us. No, they're like, Look at all the great things you can have. There's ways to spend smarter. We'll give you airline miles, right? They're seductive. Just like a socialist government is seductive. You wonder how a person uh, came to power in a nation that, is, that is, is socialist, communist. They didn't say, if you make me your leader, I will kill millions of your people and take away your freedoms. No. They said, we will make the wealth be shared to all. We will make all equal. It's a seductive message. Slavery today is a very seductive thing. It's designed to entangle and ensnare you. And it, it has so many permutations that are beyond debt. Some of it is just the media itself and sensationalizing disaster. And you wonder, well, doesn't that actually help preppers? Well, it does, but it hurts us more than it helps us. You look at Hurricane Katrina and the, the extreme sensationalism that was done over that disaster, because a large group of people in that city were told, get the hell out, and they went, we're not leaving, I don't know how to leave, I can't leave, I don't have a car, somebody come get me, you know, I don't know what to do, well those people, first of all, were slaves, they were made complete, most of those people were completely dependent on the system, most of them had lived on government or support their entire life, everything they had ever needed and ever wanted and ever you know had was handed to them on a silver platter, and when they actually were told, you got to do this one on your own, they didn't know how to do it, that's what government help does for you, it makes you, it incapacitates you to the point where you can't act, then once everything went to hell in a handbasket, they stood there and said, Huh, the water's rising, I better go up on the roof and wait instead of getting the hell out while I still had a chance. And eventually there was no way out. 
And what has that done to us? Well, it's made us look at other disasters and go, well, it ain't as bad as Katrina. It ain't that bad. Right? We had people just, just, just had their lives destroyed a two months, or what is it, less than a month later by Hurricane Rita. And we were like, huh, hum, no one's standing on a rooftop, can't be that bad. Ike wipes out Galveston, everybody looks at it and goes, that's too bad. But at least it wasn't like Katrina. You know, we just had Hermine come up here through the, the Central Valley of uh, Texas. And uh, right now it's pouring rain like you wouldn't believe. We're supposed to get between 8 to 12 inches of rain from yesterday through today. That's a lot of rain. We'll be fine here. We're up on a little hill, but there's probably going to be a lot of flash flooding, a lot of flooding, a lot of damage, a lot of crop damage, uh, a lot of electrical outages all throughout the state. But uh, it's not Katrina. So Now, the problem is not that other people don't know. It's not that your TV doesn't tell you it's worse than it is, because they're probably going to tell you it's worse than it is. It's that the people in the path of disaster remain complacent. Well, it ain't going to be as bad as Katrina. It ain't going to be as bad as that, stu- that thing that happened, that typhoon over there in Thailand. I mean, if it ain't going to be that bad, it'll be all right. And they don't prepare. It, it brings complacency. We also have to understand how deeply we actually depend on the systems. Um, and I do say the systems, not the system. The system is, you know, the classic uh, beating a kippy, 1960, 1970, yo, man, I'm going to break free of the system. Well, the problem with those folks is they didn't really understand what the hell they were talking about because it's not a system. It is a complex web of interlocking systems. And because of that, it's not about just being free of them. It's about dependence upon them, and it's about what one break in the chain means to the other systems. We're going to go through some of them today and look at how dependent we really are. Before we do that, though, I have to, if you haven't heard this from me before, help you with a paradigm shift about slavery and how that the type of slavery we have today to the powers that be, the wealthiest of the wealthy, is preferable to the type of slavery that we had you know, in the early 1800s all the way back to the founding of this country and has been legal in some other parts of the world and even a few places up till now. There, there's, there's still classic slavery in the world. They actually like the version of slavery they have today better. And you think now, if you're really an evil person, wouldn't regular slaves be better? You don't pay them a wage, you know? You make them work until they die. You don't have to provide, you know, real health care for them. You might have a doctor come over if the guy's still young with a strong back or whatever. But you have complete control. Isn't that better? No. You have to. You have to house them. You have to feed them. You have to clothe them. You do have to give them medical care. It's it, it's like owning livestock. I'm not saying that in any kind of way, like saying like you know belittling it. But for the evil bastard that would do it. You know, it's like a, like saying a farmer can do whatever he wants with his cows, but he's got to take care of them. If they're dairy cows, he needs them to produce milk. If they're meat cattle, he needs them to, to get to a point where they can be harvested. And if he doesn't do that, he's not profitable. Remember, slavery was about profit. I think that's what people don't really understand. That's what really drove it, was a desire, an evil, sick, twisted desire for profit. Made one man put another man in chains. But in that society, you had to provide everything that person needed. In the new slavery, you provide that person a wage. And no matter what you put in there, like paying their health insurance, matching their social security, it's still a wage. You put provide a wage based on their input. So they input a thousand, you pay them five hundred. Arbitrary numbers, just to make an example. So they are profitable by unit. And then you invest in other systems that loan the money. 
And we have today a rehash of the company store of the early 1900s, late 1800s, where people lived in a, a town, they worked for the coal company, the coal company owned the town, the coal company owned the stores, the coal company provided credit. These big mega corporations are all in with each other. In fact, even if you work for a small business, that small business probably doesn't earn enough cash flow to pay you out of cash flow. They have to have a revolving credit line because you do work and sometime down the pike, that work pays off. So they go to a bank and say, we'd like a revolving credit line, please, and the bank gives them one. Well, that bank, even if it's a small local bank, doesn't just create money out of thin air. It has to go to one of the larger banks that's actually capable of doing this, that's tied in with the Federal Reserve. These banks fund the business, and they fund the credit card businesses as well. They put credit on both sides of the equation. They enslave the business owner to the line of credit, and they slave the worker to the line of credit. And then the worker ends up slave to the business owner so that he stays in the system. It's not that the business owner is evil. It's not even the people loaning the money are evil. They're just working the system as it, it, it's designed. But it's up to us to decide how deep into that system are we willing to go. How enslaved are we willing to voluntarily make ourselves in such a system. We don't have to play the game this way. Right? And I'm not putting down capitalism or, or any other economic system here. I'm saying in every economic system, it is a willing participation at the individual level that fuels it and makes it possible. And if our willing participation makes it possible, then our, our willingly separating ourselves makes it possible for us to take from the system the things that make sense and leave behind the things that create slavery. First, we must understand how dependent we are upon these systems though. The biggest dependency that most people actually have is food. We look at food and we realize that it is one thing we cannot do without. You can do it without a job. You really can. Plenty of people do it. From bums in the street to retired wealthy people and everybody in between. We can do it without an income. Plenty of people do it. From the person that lives in the forest off the land to the welfare recipient. You know, they don't really have an income. We can do without a lot of things. We can do without energy. Everybody did it up to a couple hundred years ago. And when I mean energy, I mean classical 21st century lights and, and things like that. You know, But there, there wasn't electricity available 200 years ago. Water and food are the things that we're most dependent upon. And the one that we're going to start with is food. Because what we have to realize is how dependent on how many systems we're dependent on to get something to eat today. Let's say tonight you want to make a nice Caesar salad. Now, it happens to be that you live in the South, and uh, that romaine lettuce just doesn't grow real well in the South uh, during the, the summertime. So the grocery store that you're going to buy the, the romaine lettuce to make that Caesar salad with is buying uh, from, a country, you know, from, a, from a source that's actually sourcing that romaine lettuce in Argentina. Because Argentina has those cool mountains and it's their winter when it's our summer and they're able to grow this nice crisp romaine lettuce that you'd like for your Caesar salad tonight. So somewhere in Argentina, a farmer has to grow that and harvest it and package it and sell it to a wholesaler. It now has to get on a ship. It has to be shipped to a port somewhere in the United States. From there, it's loaded onto a truck. That truck trucks it to a wholesale distribution point uh, where it's maybe then sold to a retail distribution point. So you're going to Kroger, so it goes to a main warehouse at Kroger. Then that main warehouse at Kroger has to divide it up and send it to its stores in the region that it serves. Then it has to go 
and get there, be unloaded from that truck, be put into a, a product display case. You have to go there, pick it up, purchase it, walk to the cash register. Someone at the cash register takes your money, you buy it, and you go home. And I've left out all kinds of shit. I've left out so many points along the way where there's a possible point of failure. And you ask me why we prep? Because the food supply as a whole comes more from outside of our country than inside the country today. Some of our most fertile farmland has been destroyed with the nonsense done with the water regulations in California, where much of the San Joaquin Valley, which was once most of the most, some of the most fertile land in our nation, has been turned into a desert, and now they're going to build solar farms there. Because the asinine government in California wouldn't let them build solar farms in the real desert. So we've turned fertile farmland into desert to put solar panels up. And you ask me why I prep. I prep because if the farmers in Argentina get pissed off, that lettuce doesn't get to the store. If there's a global fuel crisis, the ship doesn't get to the store to get to the port. If there's a trucker strike in the United States, the food doesn't get to the store. If I have economic trouble in my life and I haven't created any redundancy, I can't get food from the store. But we're dependent on that entire web of systems there. Look at energy. We look at energy and we say, let's leave foreign sources of energy out. Let's leave gasoline out. Let's look at the ability to walk into our home and flip a light switch. And we're using good old conventional West Virginia coal to make that happen. But we're in Texas. So a coal miner has to go down in the hole and dig the coal out of the hole, raping and destroying the land as he goes and creating huge amounts of mercury. But hey, I'm not putting him down. This is just a side effect of the coal industry as a whole. And that has to happen. That coal then has to go to a coal breaker, which will sort the coal based on size and purity and break it up into small components. Once that's done, it has to be then probably trucked to a train yard where it's loaded on the trains because it's just not you know, economically viable to truck coal from West Virginia to Texas. So huge carloads of the, the train are loaded up with coal, and that's then sent in a train system all the way down, burning both diesel and electricity, depending on what part of that train route it's on, to get the coal all the way down to the new coal generation plant in Texas. That coal then has to be unloaded from the train, taken in, and burned. That, that electrical generation then occurs off of the energy produced by the coal, and it has to be distributed through a series of distribution networks throughout the state of Texas to eventually get to your light bulb so you can flip a switch and the light bulb comes on. How many points of failure are there in that system? How, mu how much potential is there for a breakdown in that system? And you ask why we prep? When it comes to protection... Dial 911. Don't have a gun. That's, that's the conventional wisdom of the liberal media. You know? You're better off with a cop coming to protect you. Well, I carry a 45. And I carry a 45 because a whole cop is too heavy to carry around. So, someone's breaking into my house. I have to avoid being shot. Get to a point of safety in the home. Dial 911. Explain to the person on the other end this is a real emergency, not an imagined one. Tell them what's going on without the person that's intruding knowing what's going on and killing me while I do it or killing my family while I do it. Then I have to wait, in a best-case scenario, three to five minutes of response time. That's best case. Unless the cop just happens to be driving down my street, which since I live in a cul-de-sac isn't likely to happen. Then the police have to get there and assess the situation. They have to get in, and this assumes that someone's not under what's perceived as a greater threat 
or the officers haven't been diverted due to a greater threat or an increased threat in that time frame. Why do we prep? Because even though they want to help you in that situation, trust me, you dial 911 and you say somebody's breaking in my home, they're going to break their necks to try to help you. But their best effort's not good enough. Not when your life's on the line. And how many things in that system could go wrong? Have police officers never gone on strike? Do their cars run on fusion nuclear radiation or do they run on the same gasoline that we're dependent upon? If there's a severe enough disaster in your area and your cops in your area who are just human beings have to choose between going out and protecting you and staying with their family, is there a disaster serious enough where they'll say, my family first? Not because they're bad, because they're humans just like you. Look at the water distribution system. The pipes that just magically make water appear in your sink. I can't even go into that one because there's so many different ways that's done. It's done with impoundments and dams. It's done with wells. Some of the water in Dallas, Texas is pumped from lakes out near Tyler, Texas. For those not in the area, it's a couple hundred miles. Giant concrete pipes that pump thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons every day, 200 miles long. Because the city itself has so many people, it's water reserves around itself can't support itself. How many things could go wrong with that system? How dependent are we on that system? Big one that no one thinks about, waste disposal. This is your garbage and your leavings, we'll call it that. What if you couldn't just flush your toilet? What would you do? It doesn't take a lot for that to go wrong. We've actually learned, I've learned over the years of doing the show with you guys, that in a lot of places, there's a lot of electricity in those sewer systems because it's just not possible to keep that one degree pitch everywhere and always be going down. That somewhere in that sewer system, that sanitation system, there's electric pumps that move that nastiness along. So if the grid goes down in the city, so does the sewer system. What about your garbage? How much garbage every week do you carry to your curb? What if the garbage trucks went on strike for a couple weeks? What would your neighborhood look like two or three weeks into that? How much garbage do your neighbors produce? Do you have any idea what to do with it if they didn't come? Do you realize how nasty it would be if they didn't come? Do you realize that we're actually dependent upon that system as well? Medical care. I'm not even talking about health insurance as a whole. I'm just talking about the entire distribution network of hospitals throughout the United States. The pharmaceutical distribution system. You know, the same things, the same transportation mediums, they get the grapes to the Costco that you buy grapes at. Those same mechanisms get your diabetic medication to the Costco pharmacy. They travel in the same types of trucks, through the same type of wholesale and, uh, and retail distribution networks. They're all dependent the same way. Is there a situation where disasters are serious enough that doctors would take care of their own, just like police officers, before showing up to work? And then we add government control of the healthcare system to this, and we create even greater dependence. Look at income and economics. This is why I'm big on having a business of your own, setting your own destiny. Your employer, if you don't have any secondary means of, edu- of income, 
And especially if you have no cash reserves, you don't have any savings other than that retirement that you hope you don't die before you get to spend, has so much control over you. You know, Bob, I'd like to take a, a week off next month. I'm out of vacation. I'll take it unpaid, but I want to take the time off. You know how many people make a statement like that? A person says, I'm sorry. You use your vacation. You don't get any more time off. What are you going to do? You know, you're either an empowered person and you have enough of your own control and your own destiny to say, hey, look, I'm not asking at this point. I'm telling you, we need to figure out how to make this happen because I've got to go do whatever it is I've got to go do. Or if you don't have any control in your own life, you have to grin and you have to accept the fact that you're just not going to be able to do it. You know, can you can you take lunch at two instead of eleven? In many situations, people can't. They work shift work. They're controlled. You might as well be back in high school. This is your station. You work here. If you're not here, I need to know why you're not here. If you're absent from your desk, I need to know where you are, what you're doing. If you're not at your point on the line, the line backs up. What have you. Now, more and more people are employed in positions that are not that tightly managed, but there's still millions and millions of people throughout our nation that live like that. That's their job. Punching a freaking time clock. You know, I think I'd put a gun to my head before I had to go back to a cubicle at any point in my life at this point. Because I've learned what freedom's really all about. We do not realize how dependent we are on systems for our income. Because any of the systems that fail, that keep the food from getting to the grocery store, are likely to impact your income. Even if you don't think you're anywhere related to the food distribution system. When one part of the economy falters, eventually it sends a ripple through and it affects all of the economy. It's not just income, it's also the economics of the economy. How many, how much of the real estate disaster was caused by a failure to be able to sell houses because people that could pay the loans couldn't get a mortgage right after the crisis and up until almost now it's still far more difficult to get a mortgage now than it was five years ago. And not just for the people that shouldn't get mortgages, but for everybody. So we're dependent upon an economic system as well. A fractional reserve banking system. A lending system. That looks more at a credit score that's based on how stupid we are and how willing we are to go into debt than it does our actual ability to repay the loan. We look at a credit system and how dependent we are on a credit system. Even if you're living debt-free, buddy, let me tell you right now, your employer probably is, and if you have nothing of your own. Most employers that employ more than a handful of people cannot operate without a line of credit today. Shelter, even our homes, even our homes, we're dependent upon systems to make shelter available. And the security, and here's the thing, food, energy, protection, water, waste disposal, medical care, income, economics, credit, shelter, all of those are interlocked with each other. You own your home outright, but the law and order fails in your area and you are not prepared to protect yourself, your shelter becomes a, a, a coffin. All of these things are so interdependent with each other. And part of that is good. Part of that is good because it's what creates the resiliency. It's what creates redundancy in the system. There are fail-safes in these systems. People that run systems this large, they're dependent upon them too, and they don't want failure either, and they have backup and contingency plans. But as we saw during the economic crisis that began in 2008 and is continuing to happen right now, they can lose control themselves, and things begin to fall apart. And then it comes down to 
Are you in control or are the systems in control? Do you feel like you're in control of your life at this point? I do, and that's because I believe that prepping is the way to make that happen. If you can feed yourself, even for a month, it changes everything. If you can pay your bills, even for a month, it changes everything. If when you open the credit, you open the, the mailbox, it's not full of credit card statements asking you for money, it changes everything. If you have the least bit of knowledge on how to care for yourself, and you don't run to the doctor every time you have a headache or a freaking hangnail, it changes everything. If you can grow 10% of what you eat, it changes everything. If you can defend your home, whether it's threatened during a riot or because somebody wants your TV set, it changes everything. And the fact is, and this is the biggest thing, it's not only about freeing oneself from being enslaved to a group of systems, because the systems are not inherently evil. I'm glad that right now if I go turn my faucet on, water will come out of it. I'm not happy there's fluoride in there, but there's things we can do about that. But I'm glad that's the case. I'm glad that if I decide that since my wife's home today and we want to have something for dinner uh, that we haven't had in a while, I can run down to Tom Thumb and bite. I'm glad that's the case. I'm glad that if I see something suspicious going on in my neighborhood and there's no immediate threat upon myself, I can continue to observe it, call 911, and our police department, which is pretty damn good, will show up and do something about it. I'm happy that when I take my garbage to the curb, the garbage man will come take it away. But I'm not naive enough to believe that it can never fail. And I choose to participate in this system based on what I want from it at any given one time, and I do not become beholden to it. And I'm working to free myself from as many components of it as, po as possible. That's the difference between a free man and a slave. A free man understands the system and contributes to his own existence beyond the system, grows his own food, provides his own health care to some degree, just by learning Just by learning some of the things that you can do with what's in your backyard. I was out working on the garden the other day and uh, was out in my flip-flops and got a couple of mosquito bites on the feet that were just driving me crazy with itch. And I was sitting there talking to my wife at the pool and I said, I wonder what we have inside the house for this, you know. And then I looked over at the flower pot and the marigolds growing in the flower pot. I said, like, dummy? That's exactly what I said. I said, well, I'm a dummy. I grabbed a couple of marigold blossoms and smeared them on there and the itch went away. That's a step toward independence. That's outside the system. That freaking marigold will grow no matter what as long as it gets some water. That's the only thing that it requires is water and sunshine. And it's there for that medicinal use anytime that we need it. And as I look at all of these things, I realize something very, very early on. And it's what came up with the entire genre or the, the entire concept the show was done with. Living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And the other way to say that is there's no downside to doing the things that we do. There is no downside to being a survivalist. There's no downside to being a prepper. Unless you're worried that somebody else might know and think you're a little bit weird. And I don't give a shit about that. I really don't. I don't think you should either. I was recently asked by Alex when I was on his Socialism Survival podcast, well, what if your friends and family think you're kind of crazy? My question to him was, well, if you lose your job, are they going to pay your freaking mortgage for you? You know? If you break your arm and you don't have any cash reserves and you've lost your job and you don't have health insurance, are they going to pay your medical bills for you? 
Even if they will, do you want them to? If your refrigerator is empty, will they fill it for you? Who gives a crap what anybody else thinks? You know? Are you happy? That's my bigger question. I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. I damn sure care if I'm happy and fulfilled and feel like my life has meaning and purpose. If I have that, I could give a damn what anybody else thinks about me. And I know that's a big leap for some people to get to that point mentally, but it's only because you've been lied to, you've been bullshitted, you've been tricked, and you've been enslaved to a point where you think it's a big leap. It's not. Try it. Go, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks about me. Say it. You'll realize it's not hard. And go look at yourself in the mirror and ask if you're bleeding or bruised after you said it. And the answer is no. You can live not caring what other people think about you in a pretty damn fulfilling way. And what you'll find is that pretty soon, and it might take a while, but pretty soon, if you live that way, other people will actually have a very positive view of you. There'll be always people that are jealous of it, that don't understand it, and are just assholes. And those are just people you'll have to... But you're going to deal with jealousy, misunderstanding, and assholes in your life anyway. You might as well do it on your terms. Because none of those people are going to pay your bills for you. But what what is a miserable existence is to live a pantomime throughout your life, doing the things that you think others expect you to do, following the unwritten rules of society. What I mean is there's two types of rules in society. One type of rule is law, or it is law at an establishment. Okay, These are rules that we generally do have to follow. A law would be, can't walk down the street naked. Okay, That's a law in most places. Probably a good one. Um, but a rule that's a written rule, or at least an enforceable rule, would be, if you go to so-and-so's restaurant, you can't wear shorts, or you can't wear jeans. Right Now, you can wear shorts and jeans anywhere you want, but not in Joe's restaurant, because he's got an upscale place, and that's his dress code. He's a private business person. He's entitled to have that rule, rules and laws. You go to a workplace, and they say, you can't have a radio playing at your desk because it disturbs other workers. You want to go to your own house and turn a radio on? Fine. Rules, right? But if I turn my radio up to a point where it's thumping the windows of my next-door neighbor, they can call the police, and the police can come over and cite me and give me a fine law. But then, most of us don't violate those rules and laws anyway as a matter of course. If we went to a restaurant, we looked in, everybody was in a jacket and tie, and we were in shorts, even if it would have, if they would serve us, we'd probably go, this is not a place for us right now. That's not the environment we're looking for. We do it on our own. Most of us don't turn our radios up loud enough to thump the walls of our neighbor's houses out of common mutual respect. So most laws are to, to keep the dishonest and the shitty people from interfering with the honest moral people. That's all it's for. It's for the, those laws and those rules are written for 5% or less of society. But then, then there's the unwritten rules, the rules of misery that we follow. The rule that says, gotta go to college. Right? Gotta go. Especially if you're smart enough, gotta go. The rule that says, When you get a job, you keep that job for as long as you possibly can. And the only time you take another job is if it pays better or gives you a move up and an advancement in your career path. The rule that says after you get married, you go buy a big house and you get involved with social activities in your community. 
the rules that say cut your hair a certain way. The rules that say if you don't owe anybody money in this country, you're nobody. Debt is the way. Credit is a good thing. All of these things, and there's thousands of them that people live their lives based on. I can't quit my job. I've been here too long. That's like saying, I can't leave my house. It's been burning for too long. I stayed in the fire this long. I might as well wait and see how it plays itself out. I can't leave the ship that's sinking. I've been standing on the deck till the water got to my knees. I need to stay here. That's what, for some people, that's what that's like. We don't have to live that way. And I'll give you the short way, because we've wrapped up most of the time for today, on how prepping leads to freedom from these things. It's a simple matter of understanding that you have options, is what it really comes down to. As soon as you realize that, hey, if, if at least for the next 30 days I've got everything under control, I have a certain amount of willingness to break those unwritten rules and to live life on my own terms. If I have 60 days, I have a greater willingness to be free. If I have a year, I don't really give a shit. Because I know over a year, I'll figure out what to do next with my life. And that's what prepping leads to. It leads to something else if you do it right. Long term, it leads to an earlier and more fulfilling retirement. I got really scared at about, I guess right around the time I was in my early 30s, living that American dream, working for big companies. I started doing the math on 401k contributions and figuring out, well, if I stayed here and continued these contributions till I was 65 years old, I would have X million dollars and I could take X dollars a month in income out of that and live to be 95 uh, and, and still leave some money left to my heirs. And maybe if I got to be 100, I would still have money. And, you know, and then I started to think about that. And I started to think about the man that I would be at 65. And what really scared me is I, I actually, when I was doing the calculations, thought, 69, not that old anymore. And I did and I did the calculation at 69, and doing the calculation scared me. It was a lot of money, but it scared I, I wrote, do you know how many years that is? And I didn't like what I was doing anymore. I didn't enjoy it. I couldn't see myself doing what I was doing, even if I went to another company and did something similar. I was 30, and I was thinking about working for another 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years to become free as an old man. And I thought, that's, that's not going to do it. That's not going to get it. That's not enough for me. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to live in this system of unwritten rules for another four decades, longer than I've been alive at this point, to be gifted with 10 to 20 years of failing health and supposed freedom. And possibly by that time not even recognizing my country, because instead of doing something about the decline, I stayed in the system and participated in it. And I said the hell with that. I didn't know what the hell that meant yet. I was... Eight years ago. I didn't know what it meant yet. But I knew. I knew that it meant a change. And that the change wouldn't always be easy. 
I knew that it meant teaching myself new things and new skills. I knew that it meant for me anyway, for me personally, learning about the Internet, how websites work, how audio and video worked online, how to get people to actually see what I was doing. And it may be something totally different for you. For you, it might be how to grow things. It might be how to take people for a freaking walk. Because believe it or not, there's people that would pay you to take them for a walk. If you knew things that they didn't about the place that you were walking, they're called tour guides. And you don't need a company to be a tour guide if that's actually what you would enjoy doing. And there's a million things that you can do to control your own life. And as you produce some of your own food, store your own food. Learn to be more efficient with your finances at accumulation of food. Become independent of the water system and the sewage system, even if that's as simple as a well and a septic system. Pay off your home. Owe no money on it. Have no debt to anybody. All of a sudden, all of the input required to keep your system sustainable starts to decline. And what you'll realize is I can work 25% as hard as I do now, make 25% of my income, and have everything I need and more. So I can choose maybe five years of working really, really hard and piling it up, or step back now and coast. You do whatever you want. That's what prepping leads to. If I know I can flip the light switch and the lights are going to come on, whether the electric company tells me that or not, it's liberating. All of the things that we do are actually liberating. Now, again, it doesn't mean complete severance from the system. I would like long-term our place up in Arkansas to have as much solar and wind energy production as possible. If it's not enough to give me everything that I want, then I'll pay the electric company for the balance. But I'd like to have enough that if they went away, my life wouldn't be radically altered. And if you look at how much people put into a retirement savings account, and you can compare that to if they put half of that money into building redundant homes, paying instead of being in debt, paying debt, buying what you want and paying for it, putting in things like alternative energy, having self-sufficient paid-for homes, where the only real expense on them is maintenance and taxation, which I think is unconstitutional anyway, but hell, if we're going to be in the system at all, we've got to pay some portion thereof. How early could they retire, and how fulfilling could their retirement be at that point? How much less income would they require to just do the things that they love? That's why I prep. I prep because I want freedom. I want freedom now. And I'm willing to work for it, but I'm not willing to postpone it. So that somebody can change the rules along the way. Hell, we're living too long now. We have to fix that. How about we just defer it a little bit longer for people? How about we make people just wait a little bit longer before they can exit the system, both with written law and unwritten rule? How about we find new jobs for these old people that industry has used up? You know, more jobs like the Walmart greeter job. Not that there's anything wrong with that job, but you get what I'm saying. How about we start taking these 60-year-old geezers, you know, that's the, not my word, that's the way society looks at them. And when, you know, when they've been, they've been really great contributors to society, but that young up-and-coming group needs to push them out of that good job, we find new places to put them back to work. For 10% of what they were making, but they need to do it, so they'll do it. And we just put the carrot a little bit further out. If we stress them enough, maybe they'll freaking die in the system and we won't ever have to pay their bills. It's not malice. It's just the way the system works. But you choose to participate or not to participate in this system. And you choose how much participation you have in the system. 
Anything that's telling you you cannot break free is a mental state. It's not reality. Because there's people all over the world that have done it. And they're no better than you. That's why we prep. For that liberty. For that freedom. For that conquering of slavery. For ourselves. That might sound selfish, but the most positive thing you can do for the world is be the person that you really are. That might sound like some Anthony Robbins crap or something, but it's not. It's just reality. No person that's truly made a contribution to the world did so by sacrificing who they were. They did it by being who they are. Living on their own terms. Living the way they chose. When you think of any great name from history, they were themselves more than anything else. They were authentic more than anything else. You don't make contributions to the world by living a lie. It just doesn't happen. So don't think it's selfish to live the way that you want. You deserve it. That's why we prep. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living